Well, one of my uh, favorite types of movies are courtroom dramas. So I, I love movies or even television shows that they spend a lot of time, right, just in the courtroom and there's some case, there's some mystery, and we're trying to kind of unpack it. You have some of the famous examples, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird, 12 Angry Men, A Few Good Men, um, or, you know, some recent ones like Molly's Game or Just Mercy. I just, I really enjoy these movies. They're just so fascinating. Um, and I was really disappointed the first time I actually went to court. Um, I wasn't, you know, I was just participant or spectator. I wasn't, you know, on trial or anything like that. Don't worry. Um, but my actual first experience of it was pretty boring. I was kind of underwhelmed. I felt like television lied to me. You know, this wasn't how real life actually was. Um, but what we see here this morning as we're continuing our series in the book of Joshua in chapter 22 is that this chapter is actually kind of unfolds like a trial. It's really almost like a courtroom drama where you have the tribes of Israel are confronting each other and they're talking to each other and they're, they're holding each other on trial because there's some sin in the camp that they need to deal with. Um, and so that's why I've kind of entitled this sermon, The Case of the Massive Altar, because somebody's built this massive altar and now we've got a problem. We've got to figure out what's going on. And what this passage is about, or really kind of the central question here, or what we need to see and wrestle with is, how do we handle sin in our midst? So as believers, when we see other believers sinning, or if some believer sees us sinning, they come and talk to us about it, what, what do we do? How do we respond? How do we handle it? What is the correct way that we do it? Um, and so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're really going to talk about, okay, what do we do when we see another believer sinning? And what do we do when somebody comes and confronts us about our sin? Um, but first, I'm just going to read um, the, the whole chapter of Joshua 22 um, through us, and we're just going to read it through and then unpack it. So stand with me if you're able um, as we just read through God's Word some more. And at that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and, all that I, and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but you have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as He promised them. Therefore turn and go to your tent in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law of Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all His ways and to keep the commandments and to cling to Him and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. And now on one half of the tribe Manasseh, Moses gave a possession in Bashan, but the other half Joshua had given a possession beside their brother in the lands west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes, he blessed them. And he said to them, go back to your tents with much wealth and very much livestock and silver and gold and bronze and iron and with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. And so the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. And when they had came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it, said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan and the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly, the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. 
And then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, and every one of them the head of the family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel? and turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourself an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord. Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor, from which yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, Pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make yourselves make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in matter of the devoted things? And wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel, and he did not perish alone for his iniquity. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh answered to the heads of the families of Israel, said, The mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, He knows. And let Israel itself know, if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today. For building an altar to turning away from following the Lord, for, or if we did so, to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings, may the Lord Himself take vengeance. No, but we did it for freer, that in time to come your children might say to our children, What have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad, you have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifices, but as a witness between you and us, between our generations after us, that we may do, that we do perform the service of the Lord in His presence with burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion of the Lord. And we thought if this should be said of us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor a sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering grain offering or sacrifice, other than the altar of the Lord, our God, that stands before His tabernacle. When Phinehas, the priest, and the chiefs of the congregation, and the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words of the people of Reuben, and the people of Gad, and the people of Manasseh, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the people of Reuben, and the people of Gad, and the people of Manasseh, today we know that the Lord is in our midst, because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priests and the chiefs, returned to the people of Reuben, from the people of Reuben, and the people of Gad, and the land of Gilead, to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel, and the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. And the people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness, for, they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. Grass withers and the flower fades, but God's Word stands forever. Let's pray. Um, Lord, I just ask that you would be here this morning. I ask that your Holy Spirit would come and you would open our eyes, you would open our hearts. Lord, would we be able to not just hear your Word as we have, but to understand it. 
Um, Lord, would you teach us? Lord, would the words that, that I speak this morning not just be my words? If they are, just let them go in one ear and out the other. But let all of us hear from you so we can be changed and be more like your son, Jesus. We pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. You can have a seat. Um, so the first thing we need to talk about as we kind of unpack this chapter is we need to talk about, okay, what do we do when we see someone else in sin? If we see another believer in sin, how are we supposed to respond? And so point number one, or the first kind of spiritual principle here, is that love leans into conflict seeking reconciliation. So love leans into conflict seeking reconciliation. I'm going to unpack that as we go. And so look at verse 10. And so this is where we see it beginning. So they come and the people, so they build this altar, right? So they build an altar of imposing size. Now, it really just kind of says it's imposing, it's massive, it's huge. It doesn't actually tell us what they built it for. It doesn't actually say this is sinful, this is wrong that they built this. Now, there are other places in Scripture, um, including the, that's mentioned later in Peor, where people did build another altar and they built it for sinful reasons. And almost always, if it's built for sinful reasons, the text will include it right there and say they sinned against God or they made sacrifices on it. But it doesn't tell us right away because it's kind of the author's building up tension. It's making us wonder, okay, well, what is this actually for? It's being more vague. But in 11, right, so the rest of Israel hears about it. They say, well, we heard it said, behold, all these people, they built this massive altar over there. And so their response is, they get in 12, they gather the whole assembly of the people ready to go to war. And why are they going to war? Because they're ready, okay, if they really have sinned, if they really have built this massive altar and they are starting to make sacrifices other than the way that God told us we were supposed to worship Him, which that's at Shiloh, by the way, that's why that's mentioned where they leave. They're actually leaving behind the tabernacle. Um, so if this is really happening, then they need to be destroyed if they won't turn from their idolatry. That's what this whole book has been about. We've had 21 chapters, right, of fighting the enemies of God and fighting people who are idolaters. And so now it's saying, okay, well, if they're that, we're going to have to go do this too. And not only that, we're going to have to burn the land down because it's now unclean. But if you look, they don't actually rush to judgment. Okay, they don't um, go write a big post on social media about how terrible all these other tribes are. And they need to get their act together. They don't go around um, and start gossiping to other people or, or you know, and calling it a prayer request. Um, but they also don't just send the army in right away. They gather them, they're ready, they're prepared, but they don't just say, okay, let's go get them, let's march. They wait. They actually send in a delegation to confront him in 13 and 14. That's where it mentions Phinehas, and it mentions with 14 with him the ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel. So they're sending these representatives. They're sending qualified spiritual leaders. It's, it's like an intervention, an investigation, or really it's kind of the prosecution. So the prosecution's getting ready to confront them and say, hey, what's going on here? What are you doing? Why have you done this? And Phinehas, so his name is mentioned, and you may wonder, why is his name mentioned a number of times? Uh, well, because he really is one of the key big experts on false worship. Um, if you go back and you, you study in Numbers 25, um, this is where we're introduced to Phinehas, and it's also the, in 17 where it mentions the sin of Peor. That's, that happens again in Numbers 25. And that's where the people of Israel made false altars, and they worshiped other gods. 
And then a plague came out. And so what happened is Phinehas was one of the main people who dealt with that sin. So he, he was zealous and he, didn't, he had no problem actually killing people who needed to be killed because of their false worship. And so he's kind of the, the expert here. But what we see is that Israel, while they're not rushing to judgment, they're also taking this sin seriously. Okay, they're leaning into the conflict. They're not rushing, ready to fight, but they're not overlooking this sin. They don't hear about it and then just kind of shake their heads and go, well, you know, those tribes, that's what they get for being over there. They're on the wrong side of the river. They don't overlook it. They know that this, if this sin really has happened, this is serious. We can't ignore this. We have to go investigate. We have to find out what's happening. And look at how they talk about this sin because they use really harsh language. Okay, they don't have any problem letting up. In 16, where he's saying, what is this breach of faith you have committed against us? You may, you may remember that same words, breach of faith, that's used to describe Achan, who we looked about, when he took some of the things that he wasn't supposed to take. And they don't hold back. They continue in saying, you know, in turning away from following the Lord and in rebellion against the Lord. So this is serious. They're not downplaying the sin at all in this confrontation. And that's something that we can do, right? When we, especially if we're confronting somebody else about something they've done wrong, we can be really tempted to kind of downplay it. Uh, we can be tempted to kind of overlook it or, or make it kind of as passive as possible. Like, hey, you know, did you mean to maybe make this mistake? Or ah, I don't know if you realize, guys, but this is kind of maybe not the best thing to build here. Can we build something else? They have no problem just saying, hey, guys, this is incredibly awful, horrible sin. How could you do this? So they lean into it. And why? Because it's a serious matter. Because sin needs to be taken seriously. And they, bring, they mention the consequences of sin several times in 17. Again, they're referencing to Numbers 25. They're talking about the sin at Peor, which even yet we haven't cleansed ourselves from the plague. And what do they mean by that? They mean like that plague that happened is still like they're still feeling the effects of that. There are still people in their midst who may be sick from that, right? It's not going away. Some of that sickness is still going around. It's kind of like COVID. It just seems like it's never going to go away. It will eventually, but they're wondering, man, when is this plague going to go away? And they're saying, look, do you want that to happen again? That, that was a long time ago. It's almost a generation ago, but that sin still affects us. And now you're just doing the same thing. And they repeat it again in 18, repeating the same phrases. Why are you turning away? Why are you rebelling? They don't have any problem. They're not holding up back. They're not downplaying the sin. And they're making these serious accusations for a reason. And that's why in 18, it says, if you too rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he's going to be angry with the whole congregation. Say, look, you're, we're one family here. And we've already seen how God judges nations and how He judges us. And then they mention Achan in 20. Well, look, didn't Achan, when he broke faith with the devoted things and the wrath fell on the whole congregation of Israel, we all had to pay the price for his sin. Don't you remember that? And they finished by saying, did he not perish alone for his iniquity? Didn't other people have to die with him because of his sin? This is why Israel is leaning into this, because they know if they overlook sin, God's not just going to judge these half-tribes. He's not just going to judge the people that are doing something sinful. It's going to come down on all of them. Israel has to take this seriously, because they're all held accountable for this. And you may notice we're almost at the end of the book of Joshua, right? We only have two chapters left, so next week we're going to finish it. We're going to do those two 
um, kind of back to back. And part of what we're going to see in Joshua's last words this is like sneak peek, um, even ahead of time, is that he's going to tell Israel, look, you got, I'm off the scene now. You guys have to decide if you're really going to follow God or not. You've got the land now, but now you have to decide if you're going to walk in obedience or if you're not going to walk in obedience. And so that's kind of what this chapter is setting up. If, okay, well, here's, there might be sin in the camp. What are they going to do? Are they going to overlook it? Are they going to ignore it? Or are they going to lean into it and take care of it? Israel has to decide if they're going to obey God or not. But look at, look at how they do this. I, I, 19 might be my favorite verse um, in this section. And this is part of, they're still, they're, they're not holding back, but in the midst of it, they say this. They say, if the, you know, if the land in your possession is unclean, saying, if, you've, if you've sinned this way, if you've been making all these sacrifices, you've sinned and you've ruined this land. Pass over into the Lord's land where the tabernacle stands. Okay, you, you built another author, altar because you couldn't get away from it. Well, fine, come, come over here where the altar is. Take for yourselves a possession among us. What do they mean by take for yourselves? They're saying, we will give you some of our land. Some of the land that's ours, that God gave to us, and it seems like you've totally wasted yours in sin. Well, come get some of ours, please. Just, just stop sinning. Only do not rebel against the Lord. What does this mean? They're saying, look, we're going to have to, we have to deal with this land, right? We're going to have to burn it, but you don't have to be burned with it. They're trying to give them a way out. This is a love and a sacrifice. They're willing to give up their own land, their own possession, their own things so that the whole people of Israel can be restored together. And they're willing to pay any price to do it. They're practically begging these tribes to stop sinning. This, is, this conversation, it seems harsh, and it is, but it is also undergirded with love. It reveals their heart that they're not there just to pass judgment. They're not there just to say, I told you so. They're not there to just gleefully enact God's justice and say, great, we didn't like you anyway. Now I'm excited to kill you and get more land. They're not there to gloat. They're, not there, be, they're there because they want restoration. They see their brothers and sisters in their mind, walking in sin, and they want them to be restored. Because this, this is what love does. That even when we confront sin, it still has to be done out of love. It has to be done because we want a relationship to be restored, not just with us, but also with God. And so what does this kind of mean for us? Let's make this more applicable. I think that this gives us an example I think a lot of this is an example on how we're supposed to treat fellow believers and other people when we see them in sin. So I'm going to give you kind of some suggestions and and guidelines that I kind of see in this and from wisdom in other places. If you find them helpful, um, great. If not, or you don't find it biblical, well, then ignore it. Um, But one of the questions I see that's helpful to ask here first is, okay, so when, when I see somebody in sin or trying to figure out, am I supposed to confront them or not? A good question to ask is, well, do I have permission? Do I have permission to confront them? So who are we supposed to lean into this conflict with? Because I think there's limits, right? So, and the first limit we kind of see here with Israel is a relational limit. Okay, Israel isn't going confronting other nations about their sin and getting ready to go to war with them, except for the ones God told them to. Israel's doing this in-house. It's because it's their tribe. It's their brothers. It's their sisters. It's their family. And it's who they are responsible for. 
I don't think as believers we're supposed to confront every single person that we ever interact with on a daily basis whenever we see them sin. Okay, that's also, you might just be a jerk, um, but I don't think that's what God calls us to do, right? So somebody was kind of rude to me the other day um, when I was trying to just get some food, um, and I think it probably, I didn't do this. I don't think it would have been smart for me to be like, excuse me, um, do you know that your attitude is really unchristlike right now, and I really think you should stop that, and you should probably be kinder to me. Um, and I'm a pastor, so I have spiritual authority to do this, so please, please stop, and you need to repent. Um, no, why would I do that? How would they respond? They don't know me, right? They're busy. They have all sorts of other things going on. Maybe they just had a terrible day. Well, who am I to them, right? How would that go, do you think? 99% of the time, it's probably not going to go well, I wouldn't think, right? But there are people that we should do this with. Okay, there are people that not only should we do this with, we need to do this with, and who are they? Well, we need to confront people that we have permission, right, permission to do this with, or we have closer relationship with us. So people with whom we have a real relationship with, okay, the person giving me my food when I go to Sonic, I don't have a relationship with them. I've never met them before that five seconds, okay? So I don't have a lot of relational capital or reason to do that. But, right, people in our family, okay, think of your, your immediate family, Think your close relationships. Okay, those are places where you have a lot more permission to speak. Those are places where you, you know each other a lot more. Those are places where you probably should. And also in our church family. This is part of what it means to be in a church family. Part of what it means to be following God together is, and this is some churches, um, when, when they do, they have people who join members and they make them share or swear membership vows, right? And say, okay, hey, we. We're going to be accountable to each other, and we're going to say it. We're going to put it in writing that we're willing to do this. We're allowing each other into our lives. But this doesn't mean we go overboard either, right? But we need to have relationship with people if we're going to actually um, do this. And we need to care about people in our church family, not just because we want to be busybodies and tell everyone else why they're wrong, but because if we really are a family, if we're chasing Jesus together, well, if you're my brother and sister in Christ, I want to help you chase Jesus together. So if I see something and you're not doing it, in, if I see you walking in sin, then I want to help you. But this doesn't mean, you know, we turn into a cult or we go overboard and we start taking down lists and we report all everyone else's sins to the elders, right? Or to me, don't do that, please. I don't want that. Uh, that that's not what I mean. And, and some do this. They, they take things like this and they, they misuse it and they use it to abuse others, um, but because it can be misused, that doesn't mean that we then decide we're just going to overlook sin in our midst now because I don't want to be a busybody or I don't want to possibly do this wrong. And there's also exceptions, right? So there are some sins that are so heinous, even if it's strangers, even if it's people we don't have any relationship with, that we really do have to speak up and confront, right? And we instinctively know this. You see somebody committing violence or abuse or harming somebody or just a serious level of sin, right? Up there, we all not going to know. No, that's a time we have to confront. That's a time we have to step in. That's a time we have to do something. If we're really concerned for someone's safety. But for the most part, generally speaking, okay, and the average sin that you're encountering on a day-to-day basis, which is plenty, um, I don't think we should be doing this to most unbelievers. Especially if somebody's an unbeliever, I don't think it's our place to tell them how they need to stop sinning. And, and why? Well, that's because the person who isn't a Christian, their problem isn't that they are sinning. Their problem is that they need Jesus. Their problem isn't that they're doing things that are wrong, and if I could just get them to stop doing things that are wrong, then that would be great. The problem is they need to accept the gospel. They need to repent of all of their sins and acknowledge how much they need Jesus. Okay, That's the issue. 
And actually, if all I do when I see unbelievers is I just harp on all the things I wish they would do better, well, why don't you just stop living with your girlfriend? Why are you watching these things? Why are you doing this stuff? Why are you speaking that way? If they stop doing all of that, but they never actually submit to Jesus, then I didn't help them do anything, except I feel better because now they're more like I wish they would be. Right? And we, that can actually end up being a false gospel. So we, when it comes to unbelievers, the more important thing is that we preach the gospel and we ask them to come to Jesus. Now that we tell them not to do specific things. It doesn't mean we don't tell them they're sinners, but you understand the distinction there um, on that. I don't, I don't want to camp there too long. But so what kind of sin should we confront? That's another good question to, to ask. And one thing that's helpful here is to think, well, how public or how damaging is the sin? Okay, so the more public the sin or the more damaging the sin, so the more people that know about the sin, probably the bigger the responsibility that you or somebody has to confront this. Right? It, it doesn't just depend on our relationship, but also just kind of how public it is. Okay, did it happen in front of 50 people? And you know that. Well, probably should say something. Did it happen on Sunday morning? You saw somebody speak in a way that they shouldn't have spoken. Well, probably need to say something. And the more public a sin, the more it de- demands a rebuke. And that's what Israel does because they're saying, hey, look, all of Israel is hearing about this big altar you guys have built here. And not just that, the nations are going to hear about this soon. Okay, so everybody knows this. This isn't hidden. This is massive. This is unhideable. So we've got to do something about this. If it's in a place everyone hears about it, right? In a small town, everybody hears about things in small towns, right? If the whole town knows about something, then it's sinful. Well, probably as believers, it's our, we should confront it if it's a believer in sin. I can think of an example of this kind of public sin. Um, there's a worship leader in the town I grew up in um, who was having an affair. Um, and it was pretty public knowledge, right? Small town. Everybody knew they were having an affair. They weren't trying to hide that they were having an affair. It wasn't secret. It wasn't gossip. It was just kind of out in the open, and everybody knew about it. And yet, here they were on Sunday morning, and they'd be leading worship in this church while everybody knew what was actually going on. Okay, that somebody needs to confront that. Right? That's wrong. That is public. That, that is way out there. That is the kind of thing that we have to, have to do. Why? Because allowing public sin like that ruins the witness of the church. Ruins the witness of Israel if they can just see everyone's building altars and all sorts of other gods. They're doing whatever they want. No, we have to care about it. We have to confront it. And there's a difference between right public and, and private sin because we don't know people's hearts. Somebody said something maybe or maybe, you know, I think they're kind of really arrogant, but I can't tell. I'm just trying, you know, you don't really want to do that necessarily. The more public it is, the more, um, the more you need to, to step in and do that. Another good question to see is, well, does anybody else see this? This is a public sin. This is big. This is another believer. This is someone you have a relationship with. Am I the only person who sees this sin, or are there other people who see this as well? Right, because they're not confronting the tribes by themselves, Lone Ranger style. It's not just Phinehas going off by himself to do this. It's the whole delegation of, of leaders come together to do it. And Matthew 18 gives us a lot more and really helpful description of how as believers we are to confront sin as our midst. And Jesus himself gives, says this is the model, that, hey, multiple people need to be a part of this. It's not just you confronting somebody from their sin. You need to get someone else and you go together. You don't just go together because you want witnesses um, but also to make sure we're not the only judges. That it's not just me and my barometer for what I think sin, sin isn't, that someone else helps here. And it kind of serves as a, as a check on us and really on our own sinful nature um, as we're trying to, to help out others. 
Another good way to do this may make sure if you're confronting somebody over their sin, you better do it in person. Don't send them an email. Don't send them a text. Don't comment on their Facebook wall. Don't give them a phone call. It, the best way is in person, face-to-face. Right? Because that if you really love somebody, if you value them enough, if you really care about them, that's the way we're supposed to do it. And most importantly, we have to ask ourselves is, okay, am I doing this out of love? Am I doing this out of love? Because all those other things, you can have the right answer. Okay? You can be, it can be really public. It can be someone you've got a relationship with. Maybe they've even told you that they want you to speak into their life if you see them sinning. Okay, maybe, and it's public, and other people know about it, and other people see it. Okay, if you do all, all of those things and check, 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 but then you don't actually confront them in love, you're in trouble now. Because we, Israel is confronting these tribes because they love them, because they care, because they want them all to be restored to Jesus. They truly do want what's best for them. The confrontation, and they're leaning into it, it's out of love, it's not out of self-righteousness. Because if you confront somebody without a truly loving and humble attitude, then you're actually going to end up being in the wrong. And we can't confront people without being filled with love. Too often we're, we're tempted and we confront people out of self-righteousness. We confront people because, you know, I'm just so much better and I want them to know how much they stink and how great I am. And so I'm going to do this because I'm going to feel better about it. Or we can confront sin just because we like conflict. We like to tell other people what to do. And so we just want to enjoy that and lean into it. And that's probably not many of us, but that can be some of you. We cannot confront sin without being filled with love. It has to come from a place of love. It has to come from a place of genuinely wanting somebody to be restored in their relationship with Jesus and because we care. If it's not, um, then we're in trouble. So that's the, that's the prosecution, and that's kind of what, what do we do when we see somebody in sin, but what about the defense, right? So what if you're the person being confronted with your own sin? What should our response be? Point number two is that love willingly submits to judgment. Love willingly submits to judgment. And, and look at these other tribes that are mentioned over and over, right? So the Reubenites, the, Gabonite, the Gadites, and Manasseh, they are actually super righteous people. They are, they are like over the top, okay? If we're grading them on a scale, they get 100, 10 out of 10, A+. And the first nine verses are actually just setting the stage. They're not just set up for what happens, but they're letting us know that these tribes are really godly. These tribes are doing everything they're supposed to do. And two and three, you have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. And you've obeyed my voice, Joshua, in all that I've commanded. They've done, excuse me, everything God's asked them to do. They've done it perfectly. And not just that, you have not forsaken these brothers your many days down to this day, but you've been careful to keep the charge of the Lord in verse 3. So these, these tribes too, right? If we remember at the very beginning of the book, they've already had the land. They're on the other side of the river. For these seven and a half-ish years, they have been apart from their families. They've been apart from, they had their own land. They could have just kicked their feet up and said, you guys figure it out on your own. We're good. They have sacrificed. They've been, you know, deployed overseas or over river, as it will, for seven and a half years. And the whole time, they haven't been complaining. They haven't been whining. They've just been obeying Moses and obeying Joshua and helping their brothers and sisters. That's what they've done, everything that they're supposed to do. But look, how do they respond when they're confronted about what seems to be sin and what we find out actually isn't sin at all? It looks like it, and that's why they need to have a conversation about it. 
Um, but how did they respond anyway? So these super righteous people, they're confronted in 22. And they respond first by appealing to God. Oh, the mighty one God, the Lord, the mighty one God, the Lord. They say that his name three times, twice. He knows and let Israel itself know. Okay, if we actually rebelled against you, if, we did, if this isn't a breach of faith, do not spare us today. Wow. Okay, they don't say, hey guys, this is really none of your business. You should just leave us alone. They don't say, well, hey, where's my thank you? Um, you know, I just spent all those seven years getting you some land, and now the first chance you get, you're over here to tell me how to live my life. Okay, they don't say that. They don't get defensive at all. They don't say, hey, don't you guys realize how righteous we are? Don't you realize how awesome we have been? Didn't you hear Joshua? He told us how great we were. He gave us the big list. Here's my sticker. Like, who are you? Get out of here. Okay, he didn't do that. They didn't do that. What do they do? They actually, they don't get defensive at all. And that's what we do as human beings, right? Anytime we're confronted. Um, and, and they don't even say, hey, you guys are overreacting. I understand why you think this. Let me, let me give you the whole story so we understand how right we actually are. Um, even though they know that, what it, they are willing to submit to the judgment of these elders and the chiefs. They're willing. Whatever they say, they're like, okay, hey, you guys are in charge. We're willing to listen to it. But I don't know about you. I, I get defensive like many of you. Um, Bree will call me out on, on something. It may be something small like not cleaning the dishes like I said I would. She'll say, hey, you, you didn't clean the dishes like you, you said you would. And I'll get defensive and I'll get mad. I'll start making excuses. And she'll, she'll be like, well, did, did you do the dishes? Well, no, but I, you know, I, I don't like you telling me that I didn't do them. I know I didn't do them. And I know I'm wrong, but I really wish you would just ignore it and we could just go on about our lives, right? We don't like, I don't like being confronted about stuff. I get defensive. I don't think any of us like being confronted. It's our natural human tendency. Whether we're guilty or not, even when we know we're super guilty, we just, hey, hey, knock it off. That's how we want to be. But that is not what the Reubenites, the Gadites, or Manasseh's reaction. And they have a defense. They have a really good defense. The reason they built this altar is actually a great reason. And they tell us that you can basically summarize it and just, hey, guys, don't forget about us. Okay, they built it because they're on the other side of the river, so they have this big natural boundary. That a lot of times it's going to be too hard to cross. God had to work a miracle to get them across the river the first time, if you remember, in the crossing of the Jordan. And so what they're saying is, look, we built this altar. We're not going to make any sacrifices on it. We are not going to make, do any kind of worship. We just built it so that generations from now, your children can't tell us that, hey, you're not actually Israelites. We can point to the altar and say, no, 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 don't you see this? We built this. We know what the tabernacle looks like because we worship the same God you do. So that's why they built it. That, that's a good reason. And they're intentional to say over and over, like, hey, we did not make any burnt offerings, grain offerings, sacrifices. We are doing nothing that we are not supposed to do. We just built this to be a big, fancy memorial, a big, massive altar that we can just point to and say, hey, we worship the same God you do. But their posture, even as they explain it, isn't, hey, I'm right, so I want to tell you guys how wrong you are. They're willing to submit to judgment. They even say in 22 at the end of it, do not spare us today. If we sinned, go ahead and kill us. Well, we, we agree. We agree to the judgment and the sentence of death. Yep, sign us up. We think that's fair and good. And we think even if we could be wrong, and if we are wrong, go ahead and talk, you know, chop our heads off. They don't even want the easy way out. They're not saying, yep, hey, if we're wrong, we'll come and we'll take some of your land. That sounds like a good plea agreement. It's a nice plea deal. We'll take that. No, they say, no, don't give us the easy way out. If this is sin, please kill us. You should kill us because this is serious. And this is what our response 
um, I, I think as believers should be, whether we're, we're caught in sin or shouldn't be, that we should actually be willing um, to submit to judgment. Why? Because we care about holiness. Why? Because we love Christ's church, because we want to honor Jesus. That, that our disposition should be kind of assuming, you know what, I, I could be wrong here. You know what, you might actually be right. I may have sinned there. Why don't, we talk, why don't you help me think through this? Now, there's some exceptions here, obviously, because there are some who will, who will misuse this and who will become abusers and who will mistreat you. This passage it doesn't mean, and I'm not trying to say, that you need to submit to anyone who tries to tell you how wrong you are about things. Okay, I'm not trying to, to create a cult or to control your life and want you to always listen anytime I tell you you're wrong. That'd be nice. I wish people would listen to me that way. Um, but that's not what I'm saying at all, because there are people who will do that. And there are people who will do that, and that's wrong. That's, that's not Christ-like. But what I am saying is that when we're confronted, our first reaction shouldn't be to get defensive. It shouldn't be to make excuses. It shouldn't be to fight back. We should be willing, like these tribes are, to say, you know what? I could be wrong, and you might be right. And if I am wrong, I want to get right with Jesus. I, we need to, to make this good. I was talking to um, someone the other day in, in, in here, and they were telling me, you know, he just assumes, a good marriage advice, he just always kind of assumes he's wrong, okay? Whenever his wife tells him something, he just goes, they have a disagreement, just go ahead and assumes that he's the one who's wrong. Okay, that, that's pretty good marriage advice. That's actually really good just relationship advice, right? Because who wants to be friends with somebody who's never wrong about anything? Okay, we can all think of people, we're laughing already, you can think of maybe several people in your life that you know that are never wrong about anything ever, no matter what. Okay, nobody wants that in their life. No one enjoys being in relationship with that people. As believers, we shouldn't be that. We, we really should assume a lot of the time, you know what, if we're really humble, if we really know ourselves, we should assume, you know what, I might be wrong. And why too? Because we're really sinful. Um, all of us in this room, okay, everyone in here, we do a lot of things that are wrong all the time. Has anyone, you know, I'm not going to make you raise your hand, but I feel fairly certain, pretty confident, all of you have sinned at least once already this morning, okay? And you're going to sin at least maybe two or three more times before the day is over, okay? And that same thing's going to happen again tomorrow and the day after and the day after, right? Because we're sinners. We, we desperately need Jesus, and you know what? There's probably not a sin that we've completely conquered. We're probably all dealing with at various levels our pride, lack of patience, maybe anger. Okay, well, it could go down the list. I've got a big old list of things I'm working on in my life. So the, what I mean by that is I'm sure if you came to me and confronted me about some kind of sin, I probably, maybe if it's not that thing, there's probably a bunch of other stuff below that that you could have confronted me over and maybe you should have. So that's what, that's what I believe, that as believers, we should be willingly submitting to judgment. And judgment doesn't mean like other people just tell us how wrong we are, but willing to acknowledge, you know what, before Jesus and before the throne, I am a sinner and I need Him. And I need Him to help me. I need Him to, to help me to be more like Jesus. And, and look what happens as a result of this. As a result of this, this confrontation, this court case, this trial that they have, if you look at 31, actually everybody leaves really encouraged. The end of 30, so they hear it, and Phinehas, who is the expert, again, he's the expert in false worship, it's good in their eyes. He says, you know what, you guys are right. You're absolutely right. You haven't done anything that was wrong here. 
And then they say at the end of 31, today we know the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. And so then they go back in 32 and they tell everybody and all of Israel is happy about it. And the people of Israel blessed God. They spoke no more of making war. God is honored when we as believers, when we confront sin in our midst and when we repent and submit to when other people are confronting us, when, when this happens in the right way that it should, filled with love in a God-honoring way, God shows up and incredible things can happen. This is how we grow. It's how all of us grow, right? Iron sharpens iron, Proverbs 17. We, I need people in my life to tell me where I'm wrong because I have a lot of blind spots. A lot of things I do that I don't realize are wrong, or that I do realize are wrong, but I'm stubborn and I don't really want to change it. But I need about 20 more people to tell me about it, then maybe eventually I'll change. Right? That, that's all of us here, it's in some way or form. And so the question that, that needs to undergird all of these things is, are we, really, are we confronting sin in love? And when we're, when we're confronted, when we realize our own sin, are we receiving it in love? Are we getting defensive? Are we getting self-righteous? Are we trying to just be better than other people? Because I think this is part of the duty as believers is that we are to do this. And if it's something we must do and we should do, I think we need to be sure um, that we're doing it well, that we're doing it biblically, that we're doing it in a way that honors God. I'm going to kind of close with a story at the time I tried to do this. So I was in high school. Um, had a, a group of young men who were, we were all kind of being discipled together by a, another man, and we just we became really good friends and we're really close, um, just trying to study God's Word together. And part of what we would do is every week we'd confess our sins to one another, okay, that, and we would. It's kind of awkward, kind of weird, but it became really good and helpful, um, where every week we'd sit and look at each other and say, okay, David, where'd you sin this week? Well, all right, let me tell you about it. Right? And so one of these guys, I became concerned and thought, man, he's just, he's just being really arrogant and really prideful. And so I was convicted and been praying about it and thought, I think I need to confront him. I think I need to talk to him about it. And so I, I got another friend who was in the group and talked to him and he kind of agreed with me. And so we went and we, we pulled aside my friend Josh and said, hey, Josh, you know what? We just, here's the couple of things we've kind of seen in your life. It really seems like um, you're, you're being arrogant and you're kind of just being a jerk. Um, I love you. Wish you would stop and not do that. Um, and looking back on it, as I look back on it, especially the years have gone on, I've kind of realized, you know what, I don't think I was really in the right there because it really wasn't that public. I think I was making a lot of assumptions. I don't think this was really the right way that I could have done it. I, I was trying to honor God, but I think I could have done this better. Um, but what's beautiful is man, he, he responded rightly. Even though I didn't do it maybe in the best way that I could have done it, he responded by submitting. And he said, you know what? Like, and we didn't actually talk about what we, I thought was the big issue. He talked about something else. He said, you know, here's this thing I've really been wrestling with. And you guys talking about, this is what it's making me think of. And, and we talked about, we confessed our sin together. I confessed some of my sin and we prayed together and we hugged and we left and our relationship was blessed and encouraged. And it wasn't because I was so awesome, really. It was because the way he received it in such a godly manner. And that stuck with me all, all the years later. That's what I, I think some of the beauty that can happen. When we as believers, if we're willing to take sin seriously, not trying to be the morality police, but if we really love each other, if we really care about each other, and we speak into each other's lives when we're wrong, when we're not honoring Jesus, and when people do the same to us, if we're willing to submit and pray and receive it, 
And God can only do great things among us and continue to make us more like Jesus. You can't go wrong by repenting of sin. We could spend all morning doing that. and We should spend most of our lives until Jesus comes back repenting of our sin. And that's what uh, this passage is about. So invite the worship team to come back up and lead us in worship, and I'll close us in prayer. Um, Lord, I thank you. Lord, I thank you that even though we are a people consumed by our own sin, um, that we, we even struggle when people tell us about our sin, we want to get defensive and throw up our hands or push back. Or even we can get self-righteous when we see other people sinning and we assume that I'm so much better and awesome, so let me tell them so they can be more awesome like me. Lord, I thank you that even though we have all of those issues, that you love us. Lord, that you love us anyway, that you sent your son Jesus to die, not for the righteous, not for the people who had it all together, not for the people who even confronted others the right way, but you died for all of us. That you came to save us from ourselves and from our sin. Lord, I just ask that you would help us. We would be a people who honor you and honor your word. Would you make us a people of love? A people who, when we confront each other about our sin, we do it in the right way. We do it in a way that honors you. And we receive correction, Lord, we receive it in a way that honors you. Or would you just make us more like your son? Because we can't do it on our own. We just pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen.